The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 116. We are in beautiful Bridgewater, Massachusetts with Evan Scott, the drummer of Stone the Oracle, a buddy of mine that I interviewed shit eight years ago for unlocking the cage just a fucking overall interesting dude so evan thank you for coming on yeah yeah thank you for for uh, making my day this, this is uh fun to have company especially after after the uh whole situation we've had yeah man the that that's what i'm realizing too man on traveling on on the plane i didn't know how people were gonna be it was a little nerve-wracking at first you know worrying about like okay are people gonna be assholes because like on social media Oh, I see, you know, I see a lot oh, of hate, you know, it, it's terrible, it's fucking terrible. But when I got on the plane, dude, everyone was nice. Like I, people were talking to each other. People were friendly. We went to New York. I was expecting everyone to be assholes, but everyone's saying hello Yeah. at the hotel, like everyone. And I, and I'm going out of my way too, but, uh, I don't know. It just seems different. It seems like people want and need that kind of connection. Um, uh, so Absolutely. I, think I think people are completely different than they are, um, in their, fake little persona that they created everyone says oh i hate people but then you, you see people and i think you know you realize people are pretty good in, in real life and um i don't know it, and that's dude I, I think that's what it is when you don't know what the other person's beliefs are you know when you don't know that shit maybe you're catholic and they're an atheist you know and that would upset you or or they're republican and you're liberal or whatever it might be like when you yeah. don't know that shit you're treating them like a person they're treating you like a person so not having all that out there about you and about them i yeah. think it makes it a little bit more real Absolutely. the labels the labels have been insane you know there's like just so many like ways to break down a person like so quickly and they they think they can just analyze someone by their belief system or just anything the age group calling people boomers all these like names and quick and it's funny you know it is funny i guess but uh at a point it's like uh, it's not that funny because it's <laughs> yeah and it's and it's it's really easy i think for a lot of people to identify as a certain thing you know they're they'll identify as this like all you know they're they're liberal they're whatever they're yeah. you know they're this and so anything that goes against that is an attack on their identity um but i don't know i think i think that's one of the things that's awesome about martial arts i think you kind of lose that identity a little bit um, yeah it's and then, real pure yeah and when you're on the mat like how have you ever cared what someone else might believe when you're training with them when you're rolling with them nah, like, I, I, give a fuck less as long as they're a nice person to me and my students that's that's what it's about exactly man that that's that and that's what's awesome man it's like no no one cares it doesn't like you can see cops working you know training with criminals you know they, yeah. don't, they don't give a shit they, yeah. they may not even know and if even if they did like it, it's all gone so just how you are on the mat at that moment you know and that's how we should treat each other is like okay yeah. if you're cool with me fuck i'm cool with you and like there's no no reason not to be so that's my overall approach towards life, but there's a lot less machismo and people are allow themselves to be vulnerable. For sure. Um, so when we first met, dude, I uh, 
I had never done interviews before. You were in my first group, that first trip. I didn't even know if I was gonna do Unlocking the Cage because uh, you know, I had the idea to go around the country, interview fighters, but in my head I was like, well, fuck, I've never done an interview before. I didn't know how to run a camera. I was a shitty fighter. Uh, I had all these reasons not to do it. Uh, but then I started doing these interviews. I went to Triforce MMA, and then they led me to you guys. And that was, those interviews were just so fucking awesome. Just having people talking to me, having that interaction, having, you know, getting to hear like, uh, you know, what you guys, your, your desires and, and fucking obstacles and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's what motivated me to go to every other interview and to continue the thing. So, uh, well, I appreciate you willing, being willing to do that. Uh, and right back at you. I'm sure I made a lot of people, uh. Really happy. Everyone likes to be interviewed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of people are super nervous about it. Um, but then I think it was good, too, because they could tell. And I would tell everyone, I was like, man, fucking, I don't know what I'm even fucking doing. Let's just do it. Let's just try it. Let's have fun. Yeah. Um, the thing that sucked with yours was how short they all were. Because we tried doing it with uh, Chris uh, was sending you guys all to me, I think, yeah. dur- during a workout. And so I was yeah. trying to figure fit everyone in. I'm like, okay, fuck, I got I got 10 or 15 minutes to try to figure out what this guy's about, why he's fighting, you know, this and that. Um, I was listening to your interview today, um, and you're talking about fighting and what kind of fighters you respect and how much you enjoy jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, what, what age did you find that? Was it like around 15? You said, uh, was it that in high school? Yeah, for sure. But I've always had like an interest in it. I did uh, taekwondo and gymnastics when I was real young, like seven-ish, and that kind of led to that whole... Uh, Ninja Turtle, Bruce Lee, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Honor, you know, that, that 90s, which they're kind of bringing back now with the Cobra Kai yeah. feel, that traditional martial art that I, I always, I always dug that stuff. It's always jumping around on the couch and stuff, just running around and yeah. Now, did you, so when you first got into it, did you have the dream of fighting? Like, was that kind of a goal? No, not at all. I I uh, I probably doubted myself very highly, but then um, Chris and Joe and these these guys were just telling me that I was I was good enough, and that was actually a huge um, catalyst in my life, you know, to have people um, believe in me. So it's awesome. Yeah. To this day, too, you know. So I gotta kind of honor that and make sure I uh, pass that on. Dude, I, I think that is one of the, that's one of the coolest fucking things that you can do for someone is to bolster their confidence. Uh, because, man, I've always had just dog shit, uh, like no confidence in myself. Uh, very low self-esteem, suicide of my whole life, never thought I would amount to anything. Uh, always, always shoot, put myself down. But when I would have friends, you know, telling me like, no, 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 it's this, this, and this, this is how we see you. This is how we see you. You know, we, we don't, so many of us just don't see ourselves. We don't see the positives in ourselves. We could see it in others. Like I'm great at building up other people. Cause I'm like, oh, this is just what I see in you. you like it's, here's the awesomeness yeah. in you. Here's your potential. Like I see it, like fucking go and do these things. Um, but having that, like I had that kind of conversation with one of my good friends yesterday, you know, and he was saying like, just how much I had helped him. I'm like, dude, I was like, you've helped me like, he did this for me. He, you know, he, he created a name, name for my podcast. He made me, you know, have these other ideas. He's done artwork. Like, he's done so much for my confidence. Um, so when you have that back and forth, man, I think that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, and important. You know, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they might see you, you know, a uh, big, strong, good-looking guy. And they're like, oh, well, he doesn't need 
confidence boost. He doesn't need people to believe in him. He probably believes in himself. Um, but I think everyone can use that. We all have this, you know, we all want to put out a good front that we got it all together or whatever else. Yeah. But I don't it know. It comes back to that machismo and, and being vulnerable thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. People, people are good, man. I'm, I'm going to stick by that even <laughs> though they, uh, you know, sometimes you get fucked over and sometimes you get burnt. But, like, you know, you, my life getting like, so much better when I realize it's not about all about me you know you'll get a lot further in your life if you take other people's interests to heart yeah no i do i think that i think that's an awesome awesome approach now with with fighting what made you decide to stop fighting do you think you would ever go back into fighting was there any kind of worries about injuries whether uh physical or to uh, you know head trauma or anything like that uh no no i never worried about any of that stuff when i was fighting um uh i i never gave a fuck um i just i didn't even have health insurance all that stuff it was a little bit different back then and i i didn't probably didn't take it as seriously as i should have but uh you know i didn't get any damage from it or anything like that so all it did was just good stuff for me because when you were doing it, it was probably, like with me, I had I had some, once I got into it, that's when I started developing dreams for like UFC and man, I was a week, a week away before I fucked up my shoulder, I separated yeah. my collarbone. But um, but I was fighting just to, I don't know, the, pretty much for the experience, you yeah. know, and, and just to do it, you know, and I, and I was very dumb like in taking fights. Like I was like, oh, uh, fight next week? Sure, I haven't trained in three months, but let's do it. Like, you know, uh, did you kind of have a reckless attitude like that really or did you you know and and because you were probably also working other jobs at the time and not yeah. able to put full attention into it's, fighting it's crazy when i think back on it um i was doing construction with my father and i would literally hose myself like off at the job sites just so i could make it back to the gym on time and i still find my my schedule hectic like that where i'm always like going from place to place like just making it in time um so sometimes I can't give people the full attention I, I really want to give them um, just because of how go, go, go my, my life is sometimes. What did you get from fighting? What do you think, what do you think fighting gave you? Do you, think it, uh, do you think it changed you at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It, um, it definitely gives you confidence, but also like on a, like a double-edged sword of that because like you win a fight and you think you're you know you're like a, a demigod <laughs> but then the next day like you know you you don't treat your diet or your you don't treat it um and and stay with it you'll be exposed and pretty vulnerable right right back to it you'll be gassing for air in a second mm-hmm. so it uh for for martial arts though for what really changed it about my life um as soon as I got on Team Aggression and, and you know, Joe and, and those people were, were backing me, I, I had to, to change, like, all the, the vices I had because now I wasn't doing it for just me. It was, like, that old-school karate honor. And you got, you know, uh, like Joe Pomfret. I don't want to let that guy down. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's fight dad. So um, eventually it cut out all my vices and it, it – cut drinking out of my life which was which is amazing mm-hmm. you know i'd be i don't 
I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for fighting, actually. I'd probably be, I don't know, not I'm, doing good. And that, that was one of the cool things. That's, that's one of the reasons why I've stopped by the gym so many times. I haven't been to the new one, but um, because it is such a positive environment there. Yeah. You know, I, I talked with Joe. I did an interview with him. I, I think you guys were probably the most interviews in a school or close to it. It might have been you guys and Winkle John's. Nice. Um, but, yeah, just, just that kind of attitude. Because I've been to other gyms where, like, uh, man, it, it was all about fighting. It was, like, yeah, some some yeah. of them, they, uh, they, they make a product. Um, which is, which is great, but I think you can, uh, you can make that anywhere, you know, you can, you can kind of just train at a gym and you can just turn yourself up now and pump out a couple good wins and, and make a compilation video and you're on your way to the big time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, like the pure jujitsu and pure fighting martial arts lifestyle, you know, it, it it definitely, uh, it, I, I like to be on a team. Now, for sure. what do you think, what, what's, how would you sell martial arts to somebody, whether it's an adult or a kid? Like, what are some of the things that you've seen as an instructor, um, you know, that is done for people that you have taught or, or other people in the gym? Um, I think it really clears out the uh, constant, analyzation of your own life and worries and stuff like that and that, that might just be exercise um, and the feeling of completion you have like after it um, like you know yesterday I went to gi jiu-jitsu and like right after it I felt like oh fuck yeah I got something done today you know what mm -hmm. I mean and and uh, you, you, you put yourself through a trial which is um what I would say to people is it's as, not as scary as it seems at all. Um, I think a lot of times we hype things up, whether it's our careers, our own interests, we overanalyze them and we um, kind of block ourselves. But just you hop over that and it's like um, it's like a like a snowball rolling down a mountain. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can say that about worries and fears too. If you if you go down the wrong road, it's just gonna escalate but you get in the gym and and you know um there's i i think some people are get embarrassed sometimes and stuff like that um but i think getting over that definitely will help your social skills and help you not worry about stuff and like i think everyone everyone gets beaten up so it might as well be on your own accord yep no and uh, yeah, those are great points um I think one thing that probably keeps so many people out is that fear of, well, the fear of the unknown, but then also having to be a beginner. You know, it's like yeah. completely not knowing the first thing about something, but how important that is. Like everyone's a beginner at some point, you know, and you're just gonna go. So it's all about taking that first step and just going forward and doing it. Yeah, and I, I was, I think, uh, I think procrastination is, uh, is one of those things that spirals like that um you know a lot of people have this mentality that like in the future when oh, i'll do it in the future you know even this interview today i was like oh maybe i'll get him to come tomorrow but then i just like you, you know you gotta you gotta sack up sometimes and just be like you know what go for okay. it what's the worst could happen like it's gonna be good um 
or it's gonna be real. Yeah, dude, and that and that's that's what I do too. It, it's so easy for me to second guess myself. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, these guys even want to talk to me. You know, fuck, I'm just gonna be wasting people's time. Blah blah blah. So. All that self-doubt was like, you know what, I'll throw the messages out there, and then if they land, they land, fucking, and then it'll be awesome. But Yeah, uh, no. It's, so, it's cool, yeah. yeah I, right I think it's all camera, about yeah. taking it. Right on. So now I want to talk about, um, let's talk about music. So I was a little surprised. Uh, well, I've been following you on Facebook uh, off and on. I'm not on all the time, but I've been see- I was watching you starting to play a little bit. Uh, then it seemed like doing more and more and then i see that you're in a band and then yeah. it's a heathen death metal band stone the oracle yeah is that so crazy you never that, know what i'm gonna do that's pretty fucking nuts so what was your first experience um with trying to play music because dude i've been trying to teach myself guitar i i always had it in my head that i could never i just thought either you were born with like a musical talent or like and that's it or you either have it or you don't but i was like oh well i'll pick up guitar and start to try to teach myself a little bit and I realized, like, I really enjoy it. I'm no good because I don't put enough time into it. You know, I just fuck around with it. Um, but uh, so for you, when was the first time, like, did you take music as a, classes as a kid? Like, did, when was the first time you, like, uh, really my, found my it? My dad is a piano player, and so he exposed me to a lot of, like, classic rock and, like, The Who, The Doors, all that stuff. And uh, I started taking piano lessons, um, and I, I think don't really think I enjoyed it that much but it was just something that was going on but then my buddy Brian he uh, was talking to me in middle school and I was into that um, you know um, kind of the punk rock uh, I don't want to say new metal but you know like corn and oh like yeah, yeah. The, the, you know the real crunchy eighth grade the type of stuff which you know crunchy's good though yeah um, makes you feel something uh so he, anyway he said uh i wanted to, to sing and he said uh you, you know everyone wants to sing you should get a drum set everyone's looking for a drum set and it was absolutely true i, I picked up a snare my dad said oh if you like this so i got a muted snare and i was just hitting it every single day until i had blisters on every single one of my fingers and uh it, like they turned into these like open cuts and I remember going to school having a band-aid across <laughs> every single hand and then uh, my we uh, went and picked out a drum set after that because he knew it was, I was into it so now did you stay with it how, how long were you did you or did you did you fall out away from it like so how often were you actually playing it uh, I was playing every day I, like when I got home from school all I would do is come home and and just bang the drum all day um and i was i got pretty ocd obsessive about it you know if i made a mistake it would ruin my day really that's it's a a little different from uh some of my other pursuits with it because it does have a dark side where if you don't control it you know like i was saying the the obsessiveness over it you can really start to um go to the madhouse they say all creativity kind of either ends in the madhouse yep i don't know there's a good quote about it but i can't quite remember (laughs) now did you at that point did you have dreams of being in a band like was that kind of a a goal um yeah i was i was uh jamming with a couple bands in high school and uh just having fun and then i kind of made my own project and and uh i liked the ability to be able to 
to say what you you want and stuff and then then i uh you know played a couple shows with bands locally and stuff and i've been to the recording studios and i've you know put some miles on there um and then uh i it kind of fell off a little bit um but then when uh just maybe within the last couple of years seeing how far technology came and seeing people like you don't have to be super talented Mm. if you have the right amount of cash you can be a great musician and uh that really really intrigued me and so that's why i went with the electric electronic drums because everything was so hard to record and like everything lo-fi like you know everything was always quality and it's that takes a lot of cash to do that but then when technology increased it was like wow i can make a really crystal clear recording and and that's what I'm super happy about um, with this band, especially, is that it's just finally some high-quality, um, crystal clear, you know, whatever style it is. It's awesome to be able to showcase it and not have any lost-in-translation moments. Yeah, no, dude, the drums sound fucking awesome. I, I really liked, and especially for me, because when I saw it, I was like, oh, death metal. I was like, I probably won't even want to listen to it. Uh, but no, and the vocals are clean too. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a, we didn't even, we had an uh, original vocalist and uh, things didn't work out. So, you know, I was like, where, where are things going with this? And he just, you know, I came over one day and he's recording vocals and it was like, almost like, why, wh- where were you hiding this? And it's, it was awesome. And it, it came together real fast on the vocals and it was, it was, uh, it was awesome. That's cool. And plus to be working with uh, Joe and Eric, who uh, are in the band with me, um, they're just like on a different level and pushing me where I felt like I was kind of pushing people, um, which can be frustrating, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's about, you know, that, that teamwork and, and they're trying to push me further and further and further. And, the, and also showing me these whole new avenues of music. Because I listened to, to metal and rock, but I had never heard like this the drumming so savage you know i thought i knew like everything about drums i was getting super almost cocky when i kind of drifted off from playing and then i hear some of these death metal drummers and i'm like damn like these this is what i want to do i want to get back into this now will you what are you listening to when you're just hanging out what do you listen to for enjoyment like would you normally listen to death metal um a lot of times when i'm listening to death metal or um certain styles of music it's because i want to draw from the influence so like i think especially with drums because there's a um, there's a lot of like you can kind of chameleon yourself around there um you end up chasing good drumming to all these different styles whether it's country whether it's hip-hop whether it's you know you see some solo independent jazz fusion and i don't i would never listen to jazz fusion but you give me a hot drum beat and a hot like you know some chops on there then i'll i'll listen to anything but um definitely something metals in in my avenue not as not as uh wild and and uh up tempo as as the stuff i've been showed recently but um for enjoyment i listen to i listen to some real soft stuff um uh, my my favorite band is uh is Deftones. They always have been, but uh through them like 
the real softer influences like Morrissey. Fucking love Morrissey. Um, but then I'm all over the place. I like video video game remixes, techno remixes, um, pretty much anything. And I, I really just try to listen and see see what's there. And I have a a playlist at the gym that I kind of have specifically f- for kickboxing to keep that vibe going. Mm-hmm. But then I have like my just a list of everything I listen to, and that's that's one of the ones where like. I hit shuffle play and it could be the hardest song in the world or like the most embarrassing like roll your windows up <laughs> melissa etheridge type shit <laughs> dude one of the things uh so when i'm teaching myself guitar it's through this app and but i find myself playing shit like i've never i've never listened to you on the radio i've never like i don't know i just i was embarrassed to admit it but i'm playing like fucking uh hello by uh, what is that chick's name adele yeah and, and you know all these like uh, she got some set of pipes <laughs> yeah and all the <laughs> classical music like i was i was really fun surprised yeah. that, like i i enjoy playing classical music and i like all these things that i'd never so it's helping me appreciate music a lot more and it's just really yeah. interesting that i that i enjoy playing like pop songs you know and I'll, I'll like try to force myself to play you know slayer and and i do enjoy playing some of that too um but yeah, man. I, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because it's, it's easier or whatever. It's bringing but back uh, good vibes. Yeah. When I when I was first started playing acoustic guitar, you know, uh, it was another situation where um, I, I my daughter was about to be born, and I needed to you know settle down and, and find a hobby while uh, while while I waited. <laughs> um, and I started playing like clutch and like some more bluesgrass stuff on the guitar, and I was like finger plucking, and I was like, "Well, this is like what what I hear in my head, and what I th- think is completely different than what my hand." So it leads you again. The playing leads you to this different different avenue of things. Now, do you think you would ever? Is is the guitar just for fun? Would you ever switch? instruments like in a band like in in, in go with a guitar or uh, i'm definitely and everyone tells me this too and it's like a kind of a uh annoying reminder They're like oh you're way better at drums <laughs> like okay yeah <laughs> so that's that's my instrument but um i like i like fucking around and, and being expressive any any way i can just just uh, i don't really play any wind instruments mm-hmm. i don't like the idea of you know blowing into something <laughs> Now, have you ever written your own stuff? Have you written your own songs? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe a couple years ago or one or two years ago, I was completely had 11 songs that I was playing on the acoustic guitar and, and I was singing and I was really enjoying doing that. It was totally solitary though, which was, again, it, it gets kind of stale and lonely yeah but the music was lonely so it, it fed into that type of uh emotion but um it's definitely way better to as we can see by the lockdown and just you know it's better to be around people so being in a band is like i, I would say 10 times better than just even if you make exactly what you want by yourself i would rather you know it's like yeah you can find three friends to do that with he's kind of like even if you're the best singer guitarist or whatever it's like yeah but where's your friends at where's your crew yeah (laughs) now how does it feel playing in front of people whether it's at a little party or a bar or somewhere bigger do you have a set like 
Is it similar to competition or fighting where you might have nerves coming on? Do you, do you get a rush from it? Can you compare them at all? Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting. The whole deer in headlights thing, I think, is a, a fear of a lot of people for any type of performance. Um, for fighting, that, that completely is like a race. Like The people are not there because you're thinking, you're like very tunnel vision. Um, and I, I think, uh, I think the two, I usually use this as a metaphor in my life and, and a lot of people don't understand what I'm talking about cause I'm terrible at metaphors <laughs> and kind of confusing sometimes. But, uh, I, th- I think, uh, people have that I've seen fighters who get ramped up with their, their intros, you know? So I, I see this crossbreed b- between entertainers and fighters where when I was, fighting all i all i thought about was fighting i like i you know uh pomford always told me like he's like don't put on a show you know so you got to calm that down whereas i think um in music you have to put on a show but both of them you gotta kind of you know um stay stay focused on on what you're doing rather than just you know making some statement yeah yeah because it seems i don't know it seems like it would be I was always so afraid of public speaking. Now I've gotten over that, but the thought of going up and trying to play music in front of someone else and how easy it would be to mess up, like, I don't know. I, but I guess it's just like anything else. If you put in the time, if you get so good at it, so confident, uh, yeah. then you'll do fine. I think, uh, yeah, hard work makes the difference because it be- becomes this thing that you don't want to fuck up. But you also have to, again, balance that with um, you know, how loose you are. You don't want to be too loose and like just let it fucking fall all over the place but you don't want to be too rigid and uptight that you can't can't move and it matters the world to you so um you got to be able to deal with that awesome um all right so now what what are the plans for Stone the Oracle? Do you guys have uh so I saw on on what is it Bandcamp the yep. two songs Stone out Stone the Oracle uh, dot bandcamp.com and we got uh, two songs up um, so, uh, people have been giving some, some donations we, we sold the first track um, for like a dollar or something but people were giving crazy like a little bit extra oh, and nice. just to show support some people were donating like uh, uh, $6.66 <laughs> which was kind of funny you know um, but uh, the EP comes out tomorrow um, on Bandcamp and all these other different streaming surface services, and it's been uh, it'll be really cool. And we also have a show um, August twenty seventh, and we'll see how what we're gonna do from there. Awesome. So it should be it's it was like that year in lockdown, and then they they in Massachusetts at least they said you can take off the masks, and um, you know pretty much all of this is just. It's like un- unleash the kraken. Yeah. It's like we we were in a, a year of lockdown making these songs and recording these songs and going through all that and just now we're we're, we're out of the cage. Unlocking the cage. There you go, um, dude. And that's what that's one thing I've really noticed. People either took the pandemic, either they grew from it and they they were productive and they're fucking come out of it running, or they just couldn't deal with it 
And I, and I understand some people were just in terrible, terrible situations and it was fucking awful. I get that. But I think so. a lot of people just let it really uh, set them back, you know? Yeah, I think um, I agree with that. I think uh, I didn't, I don't really get to see the whole world. So I think it's, it's hard because people are talking about where they're specifically from and you can see, you know, almost how selfish some people are um i don't mean you know in the way of like whatever the whole um what your opinion on current events is i mean like if you're from california um like i had no idea that there's still masks going on there Mm -hmm. see like in my mind because i'm i'm a human being i'm selfish too i think oh everyone in the world's got them it's over everything's fine but i think i think uh I think some people were in rougher situations and uh, I don't know if that was totally inspired by just how wild the events were or just this, the feeling of being uh, contained or, or like things weren't going to get better. I know sadly people, um, you know, took their own lives and then, yeah. and then for some people they took it as, as a, uh, as a time to really do something like uh like my girlfriend started a a craft business and she like went dove into it obsessively and i was like this is awesome and uh so that was a big influence for me so i tried to do the same thing that's super cool all right so you said your daughter's five years old yep so how has that being a dad how has that change your life if it did i know i know having a daughter for me definitely changed who i was um i don't think it changed my um my life all all too much other than just for the better Mm -hmm. um you know obviously it can be like um frustrating at, at points but and it can be scary when you're about to have a kid and the whole situation can be wild, but like, there's something, something to always, you know, keep me going, which is amazing. And then you get to also you get to experience all these like wicked cool things, like, like watching Disney movies all over again. You're like, oh yeah, it's for her, and she's not even watching it, and I'm just watching it, and I can be like, yeah, it's for my daughter, <laughs> dude. I. Uh my daughter was like four and five when we watched all like the Lord of the Rings yeah. <laughs> and shit like that. It's like, she's a little traumatized by it, but she'll be okay. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I love, I, I, I've been very lucky. I was able to spend so much time and be a stay at home dad, like st- spend a lot of time with my kids. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's all about trying to find that balance to so like, okay, I was neglecting a lot of my work because I wanted to spend so much time with them. Yeah. Uh, so that could be hard at times too. Yeah, no, it, uh, it didn't like every everyone thinks maybe uh maybe i stopped fighting because i had a kid or something like that and really that that wasn't an issue at all um and i could still i'm still as good as i was nothing's slowing <laughs> me down <laughs> there you go all right man well we better wrap it up before it does rain and i have to pick up my son from camp but so for everyone does stone the oracle have their own website do you guys have a website or should people just go to band band camp um, stone the oracle bandcamp.com uh, pick up the EP, which will be uh, on digital release, but we'll also have uh, some tangible, actual CDs made, which I'm really excited that's cool. about because that's not around anymore. You can't really touch the records anymore, or it's, it's not as big as it was. But um, 
yeah, just stone the oracle. Um, you can look up my Facebook page. I'm always talking about it. And then stonetheoracle.bandcamp.com. It's on YouTube too, I think. So awesome man well thanks so much for doing this dude i, I yeah, appreciate it yeah no this is super cool we'll go out on a short story uh from 25 perfect days plus five more this is 18 is enough and i will talk to you guys next week later Eighteen is enough. May eighth, twenty fifty-seven. National Guardsman Cody Bradford walked down the shaded path of the way, rifle at the ready. Everything was deathly still. Not a student to be seen or professor heard. He'd survived sixteen years in a way camp, but this was somehow more terrifying. Sunlight flickered off a shrine up on the left. Five sets of benches surrounded an enormous statue of the Reverend, holding his Bible in the air. His other arm was spread wide, welcoming the gray skies and dead grass, bodies scattered across the campus, piles of shoes and scraps of burnt clothes everywhere. Cody paused at the start of the hill and turned the amplifier in his right ear to its highest setting. On top of the hill, he saw a giant set of stairs leading to the looming eight-story Murphy building. Cody had to hurry. People were depending on him. He continued up the path, kept close to the trees. When Cody got to the stairs, he threw his back against a brick column, slowed his breathing, and prepared for the ascent. Something touched his shoulder, and he almost screamed, but felt foolish as the dry breeze blew a faded brown shirt sleeve off the column and into the air. The penalty for going AWOL was automatic death. Cody still didn't see a soul, but he had no choice but to go forward. To head back risked being spotted, and he'd made a vow committed to the National Guard. Cody couldn't turn his back on the men he'd trained with, even after all he'd witnessed. Cody checked the building's closed door and every window on the north side. He started up the stairs, one step, then two, his heartbeat thumping in his ear. He gripped the rifle. Someone was watching, but he didn't know from where. He was exposed. One wrong move and he was dead, so Cody stilled his breath, listened. Leaves in the distance, but no footsteps, just the breeze. Then the slight rasp of the window being opened. Somewhere above and to the left, the sun flashed off the barrel of a gun four stories up. Cody's body swiveled. He aimed, fired three short blasts, the amplified reports shattering his eardrum. A body fell from the window. Cody ripped the amplifier from his ear and threw it to the ground. The legs of the gunman splattered on the concrete with a wet, crackling thud, but Cody could barely hear it. It felt as if a knife had ripped through the side of his head, the blade twisting in his brain. There was no way he'd hear another window opening, maybe not even a shot. Cody ran the last dozen steps. He spread against the landing and put his back to the wooden door. The searing pain made it hard to think. He took one Teflon-armored hand off his rifle and touched his ear. Clear pus coated the tip of his glove. His eardrum liquefied. He was just another member of the ever-growing ranks of the walking wounded. He should have known better than to rely on the malfunctioning amplifier. 
The National Guard was never issued the best equipment. He should have had covering fire. If half of the military wasn't in South America fighting the worst guerrilla war in history, and the other half wasn't quelling riots in the former Canada and the rest of this country, maybe the National Guard could have gone into the university with more than 12 men. Maybe the rest of Cody's squad would still be alive. But he couldn't change any of that. Cody still had a job, and if he was ever going to find out what really happened to his parents, then he needed to get his shit together. If they had suspected him of anything, he'd be out or dead. Intelligence said the squad that had been dispatched to the university two days prior was holed up inside this building. The last report was ten hours old. It come just moments before La Casa had accessed the mainframe and knocked out all communication. Cody wiped off his glove, gripped his rifle with both hands, and faced the door. If someone was inside the building, they already knew he was out there. Friend or foe, he was about to find out. Cody banged twice on the door, then moved three feet to his left. Nothing. No sound at all. Cody feared he hadn't knocked hard enough. His ear still pulsing, he was about to repeat the process when the door shook against his shoulder. Two knocks. Friendlies inside giving him the go. If it was a trap, it was too late to do anything. Cody knocked twice to signal he was coming in, pulled open the door and entered the dimly lit lobby. A group of four guardsmen were huddled in the shadows, guns aimed at him in the staircase. A swarm of flies hovered over someone on the ground. A San Angeles controlling force agent lay motionless, his face a bullet-riddled mess. Fuller, the senior officer, looked more like a kid than a first lieutenant. He held the hand of an injured guardsman on the hardwood floor, a backpack propping up his head. Cody said, Private Bradford reporting, sir. Fuller asked where was the rest of his squad. Cody clenched his jaw and shook his head. The guardsman closest to the staircase said, Don't believe this douchebag, LT. Sabotage runs on his family. He probably shot them all himself. Cody realized the guardsman was Todd Jaworski, one of his asshole instructors from the academy. Cody told the lieutenant about the snipers in the parking lot. Didn't mention how eight of the dead had been initiates with him at the camp. Fuller said, You two know each other? Jaworski said, Yeah. This guy's dad's the one who fucked the world. Cody couldn't control his volume, his head splitting from the earache. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah? Well, his crazy-ass mom tried to pin it on us. Said it wasn't the Muslims, fucking nut jobs, the whole family. Knock it off, Sergeant. Fuller let go of the injured man's hand and stared at the bloody pus from Cody's ear. He pulled a small syringe from his med kit and motioned Cody closer. The tip of the needle touched the side of the ear canal. Look at me, Fuller said. You'll be fine. The needle went in and cold fluid filled Cody's ears, numbed the pain and muffled the ringing. Cody glanced at the black teenager sitting on the floor, back to the wall. His stomach and right leg were wrapped with field dressings, most of the white fabric stained dark red. Two injured, three healthy. Not good odds for a safe retreat. Are we waiting for reinforcements? Cody asked. Last I heard, my squad was it, so it'd probably be a while if anyone does show up. 
We can't wait for that, Fuller said. Cody motioned toward the guard on the ground. Do you want me to cover you guys or carry them? Fuller shook his head. We're not going anywhere. They'll pick us off one by one before we're halfway down those stairs. I took one out. Didn't see anyone else. They let you up, Jaworski said. Probably saw your name tag and figured you were on their side. Not caring that Jaworski was his superior and almost twice his size, Cody got in Jaworski's face. I told you two to cut the crap, Fuller said. Jaworski's right about them letting you up, but it's because they want us to leave. We're fortified here. Once we're out, those doors were easy pickings. Fuller was right. Cody asked him, So what do we do? The job we were sent to do, Fuller said. We clear this building and rescue any hostages that might be alive upstairs. Let's kill us some fucking spicks then, Jaworski said. The guard on the ground kept his eyes closed when he spoke for the first time. He sounded even weaker than he looked when he called Jaworski an asshole. I didn't mean you, Gonzalez. It's just the rest of your banditos I could do without. With his eyes still shut, Gonzalez said, My people know what happened in Canada. Yeah, 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 Jaworski was no longer watching the stairs. Fuck you, Gonzalez. Enough, Fuller said. You all need to shut your mouths and do as I say if you want to get out of this alive. Understood? After everyone copied, Fuller turned to Cody. I want you and Jaworski up those stairs. Clear this building and bring back any hostages. Are there any hostages left? Cody asked. It's been three days. Are you questioning my order? No, not at all. Just asking, sir. Just want to know what I'm going into. Fuller suddenly looked older, his eyes cold. You got three seconds to get up those stairs. Cody said yes, sir, and Fuller tossed him a bright blue vial. Jaworski bit the cap off his syringe and spit it out. You better watch my back, you little shit. The neck disappeared into the side of Jaworski's neck, and do your best not to kill me. Cody had never zeroed in before, but he'd done the walkthrough in training. The instructor had warned if you did too much, your brain would pop. Some guys couldn't get off the stuff after they returned home, but worrying about getting hooked was pretty stupid right now. Reaction time was the only thing that might save his life. Cody slammed the syringe into his neck, felt the cold electricity under his veins. Everything was so bright, so focused. The syringe fell to the ground, both his hands on the rifle. He said, I'll take the lead. Jaworski grabbed Cody's arm. Settle down, jitterbug. He stepped over the rotting agent and started up the stairs, his boots squelching in the congealed blood coating each step. Flies swarmed, and Cody could make out each flap of their wings. Jaworski gave a signal, and Cody took the right side of the stairs, stayed three steps behind the sergeant. Cody's finger hugged the trigger. Jaworski's heavy breathing sounded too rapid. Cody wondered if he'd taken too much. Jaworski paused at the second floor landing, his rifle trained on the doorway. Cody crept past him and crouched in the corner, covered the third floor landing. Jaworski left Cody by himself and checked the hallway. Sweat trickled down Cody's forehead as the seconds ticked by. Each one felt like a minute. This was why they said getting zeroed in was like hitting a pause button. Every sound distinct, 
every detail so clear. From the hallway, someone yelled in Spanish. The blast of Jaworski's repeater boomed several times against the rat-a-tat-tat of machine gun fire. Then, everything stopped, and a few moments later, Jaworski appeared back on the landing, holding his right arm, bright red blood pumping through his fingers. Jaworski squatted next to Cody. Floors cleared. Cody looked for something to plug Jaworski's hole, but the sergeant swatted him away. There was movement up above. On the third floor landing, a young boy leaned over with an Uzi. Cody yelled for Jaworski to move, but the kid had already squeezed the trigger, covered them with a blanket of bullets. Cody fired blindly up the staircase as bullets bounced off his helmet and shoulder pads. Something warm sprayed Cody's cheek, then a thud. Jaworski lay flat, two bullet holes punched through the side of his face. Finally, the shooting stopped. Cody's proton pack was empty, so he grabbed Jaworski's rifle, yanked it from his lifeless fingers. Cody looked up. The kid was gone, just a pile of smoking clothes where he'd last stood. Fuller called from below. Jaworski! Bradford! Cody yelled that the sergeant was dead. He hoped the lieutenant would shout for him to come back. They'd wait for reinforcements. But no orders came, so Cody said, I'm heading up. Fuller said nothing. Cody's proton pack flashed green, so he switched out the rifles and headed up, the blue drug steadying his shaking hands. He was only one man, but one man could ruin the entire world. That's what Jaworski had said about Cody's father. A lot of people did. If Cody wanted to find out who was really responsible for his father's death and sending the Americas down the drain, he had to act like a soldier and clear this building. Time seemed to stop and rush by all at once as Cody checked every hallway and cleared each classroom. He stepped over bodies, students, teachers, and agents, all rotting as one Piles of clothes proved that the agents had dealt some damage as well. Cody felt confident on the fifth floor, enough to distract him, even on the drug. He passed a sign for the physics department and thought of his father. Two men jumped into the hallway and opened fire. Cody dropped to his stomach as bullets sailed overhead and ricocheted off the wall. He fired a particle beam to the brown bandana wrapped around the taller one's face. The shorter one was hit with three beams, not much left of either man by the time they touched the ground. The rest of the fifth floor was empty, except for dead bodies behind every door. Cody found the same on the sixth and seventh floors, decaying flesh, curdled blood, body parts. It was hard to imagine this is what the revolution wanted, but it's what they got. Hoping the last floor was just as empty, Cody climbed the final flight of stairs. He was halfway down the hall when he heard the hushed voices. Definitely Spanish. Cody peeked around the corner. Two men with assault rifles stood outside the last door on the left, both of their backs turned. Easy targets. They were the enemy and had to be eliminated, but Cody had never shot a man in the back. These two were soldiers. They deserved the opportunity to surrender. Plus, Cody didn't want to risk his proton pack draining. The room might be La Causa's headquarters, 
A dozen resistance fighters could be behind the door. Cody pulled a vaporizer grenade from his utility belt and armed the timer for two seconds. With only his eyes exposed, Cody yelled for the men to drop their weapons. They turned and opened fire. He tossed the grenade. A silent flash ripped through the hallway. Cody stayed down until the bullet stopped. He crawled out. The men were gone, their clothes and weapons bunched on the floor, the walls undamaged. Cody felt guilty. At least with the primitive guns of the resistance, bodies could be buried. Cody just erased his enemies. He kept his rifle aimed at the door, headed down the hallway. Standing to the side of the door, Cody tried the knob. It was locked. Fine. If they didn't want to come out, he'd go in. Cody stepped in front of the door and kicked it. The door flew open and he rolled into the room. A man in black armor stood behind an overturned desk, his arm around a dark-haired Hispanic girl's throat, a rag stuffed in her mouth. The man fired. A particle beam slammed into Cody's chest, and he stumbled back. His armor absorbed the protons. The man tried to fire off another shot, but his pistol had lost its charge. Cody took aim. The man held up his gun and shouted, Cease fire! I'm American! Controlling force agent! The teenage girl's hospital gown was ripped and bloodied, her left breast exposed. Her face was battered and turning the same shade of blue as the dress draped across the desk in the corner, two high heels on the floor. Still zeroed in, Cody's mind puzzled together the scene. The two resistant fighters outside weren't protecting this room. They were trying to get in. Cody asked the girl, Are you La Causa? She shook her head. Of course she is, the controlling force agent shouted. Now lower your weapon. His pistol was almost charged. He began to aim it, but not at Cody. The barrel was heading for the girl's temple, her eyes wide and terrified. Cody squeezed the trigger, the agent's face gone. The pistol clattered to the floor, and the girl collapsed onto the desk. Cody stepped over the disappearing agent and undid the girl's gag, helped her to sit. She curled into a ball, her back rising with each deep breath. Cody looked over at the dress in the corner. Did he do that? Yes. You're okay now. You're safe. She looked at the pile of the agent's clothes. They brought me here. They said tests are termination. The way she kept curling into herself told Cody he didn't want to know what they'd done. But La Causa came to rescue you? The girl nodded. How do you know? The girl shook with fear. Cody knew it was true. He looked to the left and saw the control room, the smoking computers and particle beam chart equipment. He saw the examination table, the stirrups. Fuller started shouting, maybe five floors down, not much time. Cody saw a man's body in the corner, a professor, his face bloodied and mangled, like he'd been beaten with a pipe. Fuller's voice, four floors down. Help me. Cody said to the girl, Grab that. He pointed at the agent's armor. She dragged it to Cody, who threw it over the professor's head, slipped in his arms. Three floors. The girl finally realized what Cody was doing, 
helped him dress the professor. Two floors. Cody saw the professor's loafers, quickly flung them off, reached for the agent's boots. One floor to go. Cody crammed in one foot, started the other when... Bradford! From down the hallway, Fuller said, Answer me! Cody pushed the girl in front of the desk and told her to stay down. In here, Lieutenant, everyone eliminated. Fuller stepped inside the room. No survivors? Cody noticed the agent's heel sticking out of the boot. He stepped in front of it and told Fuller, no one. They even got one of the controlling force agents. Fuller looked down, saw the mangled face. He started to bend down. Cody saw the girl's fingers on the floor. The building's clear, but we should move. There could be more coming, Cody said. Fuller nodded, stood straight. It all goes, he tossed Cody a yellow package. Take out the entire level. Yes, sir, once you're all clear, Cody pointed to the window. I can cover you from here to the parking lot. It's our best chance. Fuller was slow to answer. You're a hell of a soldier, Bradford. You make your country proud. It was like he was reading lines from some controller's pamphlet. Cody thanked the lieutenant and walked him out the door. At the top of the stairs, Fuller said, The stuff we see, you can't let it bother you. And you can't talk about it either. La Casa blew the building. I understand. Cody waited until it sounded like Fuller was down at least two floors. When he returned to the testing room, the girl was still in a ball. He forced his way into the storage room, next to the control panel, and came out with a bag of clothes. He went over and threw in the blue dress. Cody set them in front of the girl. He noticed her plastic wristband. Vanessa Salazar. Cody walked to the far side of the room and opened the yellow package. We don't have a lot of time, so get dressed. She sat there, holding the dress to her breasts. I'm not going to look, he said. He gave her space and packed strips of the explosive into all four corners. The girl wasn't wearing the blue dress. She had on a pair of jeans and a shirt two sizes too big. You're going to let me go? Cody walked up to her. No, I'm going with you. They'll kill you. Cody took his spot at the window and watched Fuller hobble down the hill with the two injured men. They'll figure it was the explosion. We won't be missed. But I have nowhere to go, Vanessa said. Cody looked to the mountains, covered in the gray mist. They're groups. We just have to stay hidden until we find them. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.